Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, welcome to the Standard Theatre Podcast. I'm Nick Curtis, Chief Theatre Critic. I'm Nancy Dorrit, Culture Editor. And I'm Nick Clark, Deputy Culture Editor. Coming up on today's show... We'll be reviewing the stage adaptation of the Duffer Brothers' Netflix sci-fi hit, Stranger Things, The Last Shadow. Woohoo! Directed by Stephen Dalry, this stars podcast alumnus Patrick Vale. That's on at the Phoenix Theatre. And for our second review, it's Macbeth, starring David Tennant and Cush Jumbo. Directed by Max Webster, that's on at the Donmar Warehouse. But do we need binaural sound throughout a Shakespeare classic? Well, we'll find out. <laughs> Plus, from the Noel Coward Theatre, I caught up with Tuppence Middleton, who is currently starring as Elizabeth Taylor in The Motive in the Queue. You know, she's in her hips, she's really inside her body, and I think that was so important for me, to have that to help me feel grounded. They are so physical with each other. It was about finding that in rehearsal and, and sort of building it up because we're sort of two semi-awkward Brits trying to be <laughs> these animalistic titans and, and it, it takes a while. Directed by Sam Mendes, this is the West End Transfer from The National. Welcome back to our theatre podcast and the very first episode of 2024. Before we start, if you've not yet done so, then please do hit follow on this podcast. That way you'll be alerted every week when a new episode lands. And do tell us what you think of the show and what you'd like to hear us talk about. Get in touch via our email, which is theatrepod at standards.co.uk. Happy New Year. Speaking of which, we still have one category to squeeze in that didn't quite make our previous episode, which is the musicals that we're looking forward to in 2024. Yes. What do you reckon, guys? I'm really looking forward to Hadestown, which was a really divisive musical when it was at the National Theatre. Yes, indeed. (laughs) (laughs) Divisive in this room, clearly. Um, But it's sort of this weird indie musical based on the Orpheus and Eurydice myth and sort of a steampunk vibe to it. And I just loved it. I loved the music. I love the. I love that sort of myth-making. And um, I'm going to be heading straight back when mm, it comes to the West End. I year. wasn't convinced of the National. I remember it fairly imperfectly, but I seem to remember the conceit of hell building a wall to keep people in didn't really make sense. But uh, anyway, that's my main <laughs> Well, my main I'm glad you brought that thing up, because <laughs> that was the deepest 
<laughs> baritone you'll hear this year in that's the West true, End. That's true. That's true. Why suppose, we build yes. the wall is a <laughs> is a standout song. Hitting all me. the low notes. It really did. <laughs> <laughs> in more ways than but one. in well, the we'll right see. way. Maybe I'll be maybe I'll be proved wrong. I didn't review it last time around. I wasn't working as a critic at that point. But uh, well, it'll be curious to see how that comes back. I, I'm looking forward to the return of Big Life, the Scar musical. Yeah, which that's hasn't like, been done for years. That's the first one I'm kind of interested in, really. Apart from Hades Town, which I didn't see, so I'm kind of I'm really keen to. I know you're all going to hate it's, it's, it now. <laughs> me. Me. I, we never prejudge on yeah, this podcast. It's a revival. This a revival as well, isn't it? Is it the Windrush sort of themed? Yeah. Uh, but it, but it's a uh, what is it like a a redo of Love's Labour's Lost? One yes, of I think that's right. More yeah. mediocre plays. <laughs> yes, uh, apparently true. an improvement. So that'd be good. Well, if we're looking at new musicals, just for one day, the yeah. Oh, yeah. Live Aid musical, which uh, uh, another of our former podcast guests, uh, John O'Farrell, is writing with Bob Geldof as we speak. Um, well, we're all sort of interested to see what form it takes. It's, it's like a jukebox, isn't it? Yes. Existing, but I mean, it's, it's like a sort music, of higher level jukebox with like yeah. Elton John and David Bowie. And but I like don't that. think they're going to come on as characters. Like, right, I, think, right, right. I don't think Freddie Mercury is going to walk across the stage. So, oh, maybe he will, but that seemed to be the indication given. Strut, strut, think, strut. I think sure. That's right. Yes, <laughs> yes, indeed. Um, well, if we're talking original musicals as well as just for one day, opening night yeah. with Sheridan mm. Smith, that is the Eva thing. Hover, that's the one. I think that should be really, really, really good. It should with be with all the bits. Yes, but when uh, when Van Hover goes wrong. He goes really wrong. This is uh, director yeah. Evo Van Hover. Yeah, yeah, talking indeed, about. yeah, yeah. Yes. Um, Adaptation you know, of the John Cassavetes film. When he's good, he's very, very good. When he's bad, he's horrid. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and this, this just feels incredibly left field and sort of off the wall. Yeah, uh, the whole concept of it. Adaptation of a John Cassavetes film, a musical starring Sheridan Smith, directed by him. It's Music by really... Rufus Wainwright? Yeah, 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 that's right. I mean, all so... the bits make sense. Mm. Yes. But, like, whether or not they'll kind of... Oh, sort of Franken musical. <laughs> I am a bit, like, I'm kind of quite keen to see how MJ the musical lands in this mm. country. Because it did really, I love that, it did really well on Broadway. It yeah. went, like, was absolutely massive. Yeah. But I don't know, I wonder what British audiences... To be fair, Thriller just thriller runs, and runs, and runs and runs and runs and runs and yeah. runs and everyone loves it. Um, so, sure. I mean, I don't know. Maybe it'll be, maybe maybe nobody cares about the other things. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> I don't know. I've got to call somebody, call the lawyers quick. But, yeah, 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 <laughs> but yeah. it's, I, I, I'm really interested to see whether it is anything like as big a hit as it mm. is here, uh, here as it is on Broadway. Yeah. Uh, one quick mention, London Tide as well at the National Oh, yeah. With uh, music by PJ Harvey, I believe. Yeah, it? that's sort yes. of like a play with music. Yes, right? with based on our mutual friends. That's right. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, by Ben Power. Adapted by Ben Power. And um, then of Mean Girls. Mean Girls. Mean Girls. Yeah. And that's not the only musical adaptation of a film. There's, of course, The Devil Wears Prada. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, of course, Hello, Dolly, which I've never seen. And it's got Imelda, um, the great Imelda Staunton in yes. it. So I'm looking forward to that. I've too. never seen Hello, Dolly. I mean, the, all these musicals basically seem to be just waiting around until Imelda Staunton gets around <laughs> to doing them. Which is you know, the appropriate gypsy, really. Thing. And yes, yeah. yeah. Quite yeah. right, too. It's going to be terrific, I think, to see her back on stage. That's yeah. going to be absolutely wonderful. After her turn in... The Crown. Is, yeah, as the Queen. Yes. From the Queen, the literal Queen, to the Queen yeah, of the West queen End. Of West yeah. End. So, Again, boom, boom. Right. Time for our first review of the year. This is Stranger Things, The First Shadow at the Phoenix Theatre. I'm going to go and see it quite soon. Now, I'm not... A, I haven't seen the show. B... I haven't seen the show. <laughs> like, I, I am not a Stranger Things aficionado by any means. Should I go? This stage adaptation is like nothing else that has, has hit the West End before, really. Oh, that's um, cool. The closest comparison is obviously, I think, um, Harry Potter 
and the Cursed Child, which has similar levels of sort of dazzle and spectacle. But this feels like the the, the tech has just has moved on by leaps and bounds, even since those days. Um, it's going to be interesting comparing this to what we say about Macbeth later because I, I want to establish my credentials here that I'm not anti-tech in theatre. Mm-hmm. I think it, it, it absolutely feeds the live experience here. Yeah. It provides what Net thinks of Macbeth. <laughs> yeah. Spoiler yeah. alert. Spoiler alert. <laughs> but here it absolutely feeds and enriches an extraordinary live experience which sort of gives you all the sort of scares and in-jokes and mm. nerdy stuff that you get from Stranger Things, the TV series, which is very you know heavily influenced by 80s culture. It feels like it really, there is a shared DNA, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, there is, absolutely. But it is is a live experience and it is a live version. It's not just some dodgy knockoff screen to stage, which we, let's face it, have seen in uh, recent years. Um, And it's not just some cash-in either. This is really, uh, you know, a a West End experience. I mean, I went just before Christmas and the sense of anticipation in the auditorium, I've got to say, from everyone around me, you know, showed that this, this is an event. Yeah. You yeah. know, it felt to me like a lot of people, like people may have even traveled over from the States. There were a lot of American voices. I mean, they may have obviously been based here and certainly new people to theater, which yeah. is something um, we can talk about a bit later on as well, because it feels like it might actually do real wonders to, you know, sparking a love of theater in younger audiences. Yeah, but, cool. The thing we should probably say about this is the first series of Stranger Things was set in the 80s and yep. sort of benefited from the sort of immersion of the music and the fashions and the yep. bicycles and everything of the culture of that decade. This is a prequel in which some of the adult characters from that first ser- season of the of the TV series are shown in their sort of late teen years as they're yeah. just about so to Yeah, so it's set in 1959 yeah. in Hawkins, Indiana, the same town of the, of the series. Yeah, as you say, there's a young Jim Hopper who's... Uh, uh, at this stage, struggling with his policeman father, uh, you know, long before he becomes a policeman himself. Joyce Maldonado, yep. before she um, gets married, and uh, here she's very much a firebrand trying to escape the town. I think we know what happens anyway. Anyone who's seen it knows what happens. This is very much created by the Duffer Brothers, who created the show, but also with an original story by Jack Thorne, um, as well as... Oh, I've Kate lost... Treffery is the... Uh, is the Kate Treffery, person. and she wrote the yeah, actual script. That's right. I think, I'd, I mean, I described this as a bit of a nerdgasm, the whole thing. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> it's partly because I am a, an out-and-out nerd, but I loved all the references to sort of to ham radio, to comics, to sci-fi at yeah. the time. There's quite a lot of um, stuff about sort of conspiracy theories and about, particularly about the uh, long-standing conspiracy theory about the, the supposed plan to make a warship disappear. Which is not too much of a spoiler to say that there's a fairly dramatic opening which taps oh, into that had people this. in uh, you know bursting into applause yeah. within ten minutes yeah you know there were gasps oh this is a moment yeah we were talking about it and you said something about like the age appropriateness of yeah. this because somebody uh, else said to me over the over the new year like this is re- it's really scary yeah, yeah it is and oh. you were there and there was like a family with like 10 year olds oh, like, uh, okay me, yeah so there crazy? were lots of there were lots of 10 mm. year olds well I mean, uh, you know, <laughs> did you check age range of who knows <laughs> it um, must be this high to see this show this tall to see <laughs> yeah. this show yeah again part of the DNA of the show it is a scary show it has um, you know horror tropes yeah. in it and the play absolutely lives up to that. There are moments, and I'm not going to give any of them away, but there's something with a cat. And then something that it, which is later transferred to a person as well. You know, I think if I was less than a teenager, I would have, I would never sleep again. I think they're recommending um, it for 12 and up. But it is, you know, I would say you'd, you'd need fairly sort of tough 12-year-olds to, to you know, but, not be... Uh, right. But then everyone's got to take the choice. So the, yeah. the, there was a family behind me, American family behind me, who were clearly massive Stranger Things fans. Every time there was an Easter egg or whatever, things that I had no idea about, they would would point and clap and cheer and sort of reference it. 
But I <laughs> turned around and the kid was must have been 10, 11, 12. The lights go up at the end. And I sort of turned around expecting them to go check on little Johnny or whatever and say, is everything okay? They were absolutely high-fiving and whooping. Little Johnny said, that was the best play ever. <laughs> so that's what I kind of mean in that I think it will inspire people or some sort of young people to, to love or to certainly find out more theatre. But, I, I but really some was, never again. Some yes. never again. I was really surprised. You know, it does it brilliantly. There are jump scares. There are things. It is shocking in yeah. part. There are some very gory effects and mm. there are some very startling moments in it. But um, one of the great things about it, this is directed by Stephen Daldry. You know, he's he's a man who spans theatre, television. He was behind the first series oh, of The Crown. It is you know, masterfully directed. It is incredibly well directed. And it, let's, let's not forget that he was the man who brought Billy Elliot to the screen and then to the stage and found that incredible roster of young performers yep. in Billy Elliot. And here, they're not quite as young as the boys in Billy mm. Elliot were, but the young cast he's found here are absolutely extraordinary. Superb. I think, I mean, particularly Louis McCartney. At, I was uh, going to say, Henry Creel. he is the MVP of the whole show. Yeah. I mean, uh, Isabella Papas as um, Joyce. Yeah, Ella is, Karuna Williams, I loved mm, her as Patty Newby as well, fantastic. which brings another layer of... Basically, it's being a story of outsiderdom to the whole thing as well. And it's, it's really neatly meshed into yeah. into the whole thing. But the, Louis McCartney, mm. it's his first stage role. He is absolutely owns that stage. He absolutely feels, it looks as if he's capable of sort of disjointing himself. Yeah. Um, oh. Anyone who's seen Stranger Things will be aware of the sort of physical yes. transformations or and there's a the things few that happen those. to people. And yeah, there's a few of those. <laughs> and he just seems to be able to do them. Oh, that makes my hips hurt. Yes, yeah. well, quite. Um, I, I hope he's got a physio standing by. Yeah. <laughs> Every night. I also like the, the references to Shakespeare in there. I don't know if you picked up on this, but certainly one is the horror uh, trope. Don't gloss- worry if you didn't. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm just going to teach you a little bit about Shakespeare. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, uh, there's, a, again, a horrific moment, which is very reminiscent of Gloucester and Lear, I Absolutely thought. Absolutely. Where, yes. again, I thought... Kids, wow, watching this, they're basically, well, anyone who's seen Lear knows what happens to Gloucester. But also there's the Hamlet references because the whole thing is Joyce um, Maldonado is putting on a play and they use it to try and catch the conscience of one of the evildoers. I thought, oh, we're Ryan Hamlet as well. So they're really going for the epic too. Yes, but it's also, it's it's that lovely sort of layering of things that the the play Mm. is about a witch boy trying to fall in, you know, trying to win the heart of a human girl, Mm -hmm. which parallels the sort of, action of the of the wider play yeah. um, and it's also you know a story of outsiderdom again you know within another story of outsiderdom um and it's a a bit like the motive in the queue it's it's theater about theater in some ways which is, as well. is it's interesting you know live performance well, given it's where it comes from is interesting so yeah. they've really lent into they've understood that yeah. to make it work on stage they have to make it uh, sort of something of the theatre yes. and they've done that yep uh, one thing I think we should flag up is it's three hours long <laughs> it oh, is, all right hang yeah. on <laughs> Well, Steady on. But amazingly, I thought... I think it earns it. It, it does earn it. Yeah. And, it and I was no stage was I bored or mm. thought, God, this is dragging. It's absolutely spectacular. Yeah. I think it will, you know, it will run and run. As it say, will. You know. And no doubt head uh, to Broadway, I should imagine. Well, yes. although <laughs> it seems most of Broadway audiences <laughs> might be heading here instead. Yeah. But um, yeah, so, you know, if you haven't seen Stranger Things, don't worry about it. It is a piece of theatre in its own right. If you have... There are so many whoops, cheers, uh, so things to make your heart. I mean, we should just say the first time that the red neon comes sweeping down the stage yes. and the electro music starts, yes. even I felt, yeah, okay, yeah. they were That's in for right. a good really, night. Really subtle, clever nods to the TV yeah. series, you know, which you don't need to get, but if you do get them, then, yeah, as you say, they're lovely Easter eggs for you. So go and head to the Upside Down, people. Absolutely. 
Stranger Things, The First Shadow, is currently booking to August the 25th, 2024. Uh, and if you're yet to do so, you can hear my chat with Patrick Vale, who stars as the young Dr. Brenner, via a helpful link in the show notes. Let's go to the ads. Coming up in part two, we'll be with Tuppence Middleton, who is starring as Elizabeth Taylor in The Motive in the Queue, which is now transferred to the West End. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, this is Jared Harris, and you're listening to the Standard Theatre Podcast. Welcome back to the Standard Theatre Podcast. We're at the Noel Coward Theatre with Toppence Middleton, who is in The Motive and The Cue. Um, Toppence, hello. Thank hello. Thank you so much for joining us. <laughs> what was it, I feel a bit like um, Mrs Merton, what was it that appealed to you about playing superstar Elizabeth Taylor <laughs> in a play directed by Sam Mendes? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's kind of a hard offer to turn down. <laughs> yeah. Everything appealed to me. Firstly, seeing that it was written by Jack Thorne, mm. who seems to write everything for every medium. Sam, of course, he seems to be one of the only directors who who does theatre and film mm. to that level, I think. They're, they're quite a different skill set. I mean, both to act in and I imagine to direct too. So that was something that was really reassuring to me because I come from a mostly sort of film and television background. I'd always wanted to get back into doing more theatre and The National was really a sort of dream building to work at in, in my eyes and then and then to transfer with a, a, a play there into the West End is just yeah the icing on the cake and Elizabeth Taylor is like a quite a quite a person to play yeah I think I mean the idea of it was of course irresistible but also quite nerve-wracking because everyone has their own idea of who Elizabeth was and so much was written about her and, mm. and everyone has their opinion of, of who she was and I, I think really for me it was once we got into rehearsals about concentrating on on the Elizabeth Taylor that Jack had written and that we the, the Elizabeth that we were exploring so rather than doing a straight impersonation um, we were building a character from what Jack had written from our research I, I read almost every <laughs> book that you can find on Elizabeth Taylor including her autobiography and um, a couple of biographies about Liz and Dick as a couple so it felt a bit more relaxed than having this kind of big pressure because I think you're never going to please everyone so you just have to you have to try and be as true to the character as you can be and hope that people enjoy what you're doing. It's quite an interesting version of Elizabeth Taylor isn't it in the play she's almost like a diplomat. Yeah she's really the mediator I mean I think she was, uh, by many accounts, a very smart woman, very wise and big-hearted. And I think that certainly in our version, Jack has cast her as as the sort of middleman between, uh, or middle middle woman rather, between these two titans. And well, the we should probably one... explain, shouldn't we, to listeners who have somehow yeah. failed to notice that the motive in the queue is about the the Hamlet. Well, you tell us what the yes. motive in the queue well, is about. Yeah, it, it's about um, 1964 production of Hamlet, uh, where John Gilgood directed Richard Burton as Hamlet. Um, and I think rather than it going 
smoothly, which is what they both had perhaps expected. It was quite a tumultuous um, experience because they were very different animals and they had very different styles of acting. And actually, um, one of the actors in the company recorded, secretly recorded, a lot of the rehearsals. And at a certain point, Richard and John really do come up against each other and they just can't communicate. They don't know how to how to sort of dance around each other because they they are just different beasts. And Elizabeth is brilliant in the way that she is able to communicate with them both in their own kind of language and then find a middle ground where they can begin to uh, understand each other. There's quite an interesting physicality about playing someone like that. And in relation to um, Johnny Flynn's Richard Burton, their relationship is very it's very physical yeah um that's part that's a large part of what they what they are together yeah but also she just has a very interesting way of moving doesn't she what was that how did you do that yeah well so much of it um was really about trying to find elizabeth's look as well her silhouette physically i'm quite different to elizabeth i'm taller she was she was about five foot I think five one she She was quite short and she was obviously famously very voluptuous and I'm not (laughs) and so so we we had to find this way you know I'm using my real hair but with a little bit of a piece and and you know it's dark like Elizabeth was and I'm pale like Elizabeth was but those other things we had to kind of create and so we worked for a long time with the, the costume team on creating this sort of foundation that goes underneath all my costumes which is essentially a padded bodysuit right. so it's padded on the breasts and on the hips and on the bum so it just gives this sort of weight this kind of womanliness to her that that is essential for the way for, for where her center is I think her center is kind of you know she's in her hips she's really inside her body and I think that was so important for me to to have that to help me feel grounded and, mm. and in her body. And because she's so, you know, as you said, they are so physical with each other. It was about finding that in rehearsal and, and sort of building it up because, you know, we're, we're sort of two semi-awkward Brits trying to be <laughs> these animalistic titans. And, and it, it takes a while. So, we have, you know, it has to be a lot of trust. And, and we, as we got to know each other, it became much easier because we were able to be more kind of communicative about... Uh, you know boundaries and stuff sexiness is quite an interesting thing though isn't it i mean everybody has it but yeah but it's so specific to the person isn't it yeah we actually talked with sam about when we were transferring to the west end about ramping up the sexiness a bit more because in all of the the books that you've read about them it was kind of a, a performative part of their relationship they were very demonstrative in their in their love and i think that that was part of the game for them that was exciting and thrilling to kind of be a bit inappropriate in front Mm. of people so we wanted to like (laughs) raise that you know show the difference between them in in public and and then them in private and how when there aren't people to bounce off and when you know they feel bored how they go looking for conflict and Mm. they need that to kind of feel sexually alive or something oh that's so interesting Mm. i look i look forward to seeing it for a second time in that case yeah i think it, it does feel like it's change you know it, it feels like it's just taken their relationship up to the next level and I think there's lots of other really nice changes that have happened which really do f- make it feel like a, a kind of fresh look at the show it's really nice so actors especially in theatre I think have mm. quite a lot of kind of rituals and things like that don't they but for you that's a kind of more fundamental thing isn't it yeah yeah so um because I have OCD uh, ritualistic sort of thinking is quite 
a big part of my every day, which is something I almost don't notice anymore. It's just so ingrained, it's very internal. It tends to be more noticeable when it manifests as compulsions, which is, you know, when I'm a bit more stressed and um, if I have certain routines I have to perform, which is often counting and checking things. And But funnily enough, performing is one of the spaces where I, I don't get affected by it. It's almost like, I mean, there's this sort of old, you know, um, I don't know what you would call it, but... Uh, it's adage, maybe? Adage, yeah, old adage about um, Dr. Theatre. So that if you feel unwell then you go on stage and something about the adrenaline and the performance, you, you you can be on stage for five minutes and not feel ill and walk off and feel dreadful. It's something people always say, you know, how you get through a performance if you're, if you're not very well. Oh, um, so something about that, it, I think living in the mind of someone else means that those parts of your mind don't travel with you. It's quite, well, that's what I found anyway. But the thing that I find more difficult about performance, I mean, with film too, but more in theatre because it's such a, a company experience is that, you know, when you're working in close quarters with people and there's, you know, as in our cast, 18 people, um, is a, uh, an illness hmm. thing that, that there is always illness spreading around, especially if you're working in the winter months or if one person gets something, it usually travels pretty quickly around the cast. And one of the main sort of features of my OCD is emetophobia, which is a fear of vomiting. Right. That's something that I obsess about quite a lot going into a rehearsal process. I, I worry that people are going to get uh, some kind of sickness yeah, bug sure. and then it's yeah. going to spread and um, how to avoid that and so then extra hand washing and those kind of things. But that's sort of a thing that I would do regardless. Yeah, sure. But I'd say largely when I'm working, that's that's a place where I feel uh, much less affected by it, actually. Oh, that's interesting. Mm. But you're writing, a, you're writing a book, aren't you, about your, yes. well, about your life, but with yeah. that, through that prism. That yes, right? well, I've, I've almost finished it. I wanted to find a creative way to explore that and to help people understand what it feels like. So, yeah, it's something uh, I hope will be interesting for people, whether they're going through the same thing or not. I think I certainly would have liked to have known or read more about mm. it when I when I was um, first sort of dealing with it in, in my early teens. So, and it's one of those things where sometimes you can have a thought in your head or a, a, an, an intrusive thought or an obsession and you it feels very singular. And actually when you speak about it, you realize there are people who are going through the same thing. And that's a really nice feeling. And um, that, you know, when I've talked about it before, I've had messages from people that have told me they, they're going through the same thing or they have that same emetophobia, which they didn't realize was e even a, a condition yeah so it's it's been a kind of cathartic experience as well as um yeah it's strangely pleasurable being able to write everything down and uh, and and to really sort of put it in one place you yeah. know because i think it, it is so important to talk about it people are interested to talk about it and i think sometimes i i feel i'm doing a disservice to sort of give snapshots in in interviews about what it is and actually maybe it's better to just put that experience in, in one place and people can access it there and that's um, hopefully some help. <laughs> I can't wait to read it. Oh, thank you. Tuppence Middleton, thank you so much for joining the Standard Theatre Podcast. Thank you for having me. That's on until March 23rd. And you can also hear Nick's earlier interview with Tuppence's co-star Mark Gatiss, who plays John Gielgud. You can find that interview in our show notes. Right, let's go to the ads. In part three, Nick and Nancy will be reviewing Macbeth. 
only starring David Tennant and Kush Jumbo. Oh my god. Blimey. I'm Hattie Morahan and you are listening to the Standard Theatre Podcast. Welcome back to the Standard Theatre Podcast. Next up, Macbeth at the Donmar. I haven't seen this, but Nick and Nancy, is this a winner I see before me or does something <laughs> wicked this way come? Um, <laughs> okay, yeah, thanks for that. Yeah. You want to go first? Well, I mean, okay, so let's tell you what it is. It's Macbeth. Yeah. yeah it's Macbeth. You know about Macbeth. You know how that works. But the uh, the conceit this time at the Donmar, which is a very small theatre, about 300 seats, which I think is a good thing for Macbeth, yeah. um, means you wear headphones throughout with binaural sound. I don't know if that's how you say it. You, and you get, you know, a little bit of extra kind of sound effects like flapping ravens, which I admit, Nick, they may have gone a bit overboard with. <laughs> it means that you hear their kind of interior monologues a lot more closely. So that's it. But you are wearing headphones watching people in a theatre. Um, I really liked it, actually. Mm. You did not, did I, you? I was not smitten by it, largely because of the technology. I admired David Tennant hugely. I think this is the best I've seen him doing Shakespeare. He, you know, he routinely comes back to the theatre to do Shakespeare. Not always the easy ones, you know. He did do, not always the big hits. He did do a very, you know, credible Hamlet. Um, but he also did Richard II, which you know is a bit more of a an ask for an audience. Um, mm. Macbeth should really have been great, and he was great at it. But I found the tech a distraction and a distancing. You know, it had a sort of distancing, chilling effect. Quite often, I, f- I took the headphones off and just listened to it. And he was. He and Chris Jumbo were speaking conversationally, or they were sometimes whispering. And actually, listening to them whispering in a theatre was extraordinary, particularly because there was a level of quietness, I think, from the audience that you don't normally get because everyone was wearing headphones and concentrating more. But fed through the headphones, a whisper is as loud as a shout, and uh, I didn't really feel I was getting inside their heads. I felt their thoughts were being broadcast to me, and it didn't really work for me. Ah, okay. Well, I mean, I can see how it might be annoying. Uh, I admit that. Quite early on, I did have the feeling that I was watching TV. Yeah. I don't know. I felt like it was quite an interesting, a sort of broadly successful conceit. I also think, and I think you agree with this, that it's really cool that they tried something different. Yeah, yeah. They didn't have to do They could have just done a straight Macbeth, and it would have sold just as many tickets. Yes, and it has um, it has sold out. It sold out you know, yeah, way before, long before it opened because it's such a small theatre and because it's David Tennant and Kush Jumbo. And, you know, it's, it opened right after he went back to being Doctor Who. Or, yeah, yeah exactly. he was going briefly, back into yeah, being exactly. Doctor Who. Uh, so, you know, it was always, always going to sell out. And yes, agreed. I mean, Max Webster, I think, is a, who's the director, is a very interesting, you know, creative force. And yeah. somebody who does bring new ideas to projects. And I think this was... Even without the technology, this would have been quite a successful... Uh, Macbeth is staged on a very um, plain set, basically a, a sort of raised dais which stands as a banqueting table or a battlefield or, you know, a, a sort of platform on which the Macbeths are crowned. Behind it, there's this sort of clear window from which the rest of the cast watch the action when they're not on stage as a sort of chorus. And there is an implication that you know various things are sort of diced around... Different characters, you know, different characters are, are allocated different roles. In this, not for the first time, um, Lady Macbeth becomes the person who warns Lady Macduff mm. that her husband is about to have her, you know, that Macbeth is about to have her killed. That, I thought, was a very powerful moment. I thought a lot of it was 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 really interestingly staged. Um, well, you've mentioned David Tennant. How's Kush Jumbo? Well, I mean, I, the thing about the miking, right, is which is, of course, unintentional, 
is that I think it starkly highlights how minimal a role it is. Lady yeah. Macbeth, like she's meant to be one of the great female roles in Shakespeare, but actually she's an interesting role, but line by line, she's not actually a particularly big or good one. And this time that really struck me, how little she appears and in fact how little of her interior life we get because you... You know, you get all of like Macbeth kind of like whispering to himself and talking about, you know, and thinking. But it it, it made me realise or sort of crystallise for me the fact that in Shakespeare, you do not get women's interior lives unless they are thinking about love. That's the only thing. And so I felt like Cush Jumbo didn't quite have enough to do, yeah. weirdly. Yeah. Like, you know, you're kind of the headphone experience. You were separated from her charisma. Um, and I, I miss. I think it was. I mean, it's possible it wasn't a very good performance. But I've seen her do Hamlet. I've seen her do yeah. Mark Antony. I've seen her do Josephine Baker. I'm reluctant to think that actually she sort of screwed up Lady Macbeth. You know what I mean? Yeah. So uh, I just feel like she wasn't able to be as exciting as she could have been because of the way that the production was put together. I agree. There was that lovely quote from Judy Dench. I think that Macbeth is her favourite play because it's an hour and fifty. You know, you're done. No into pub. Brilliant. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, yeah. You know, so there is a sort of th- there is a sort of thesis that that you can't screw up Macbeth, and you, and you know that it's a surefire hit. It's you know it's propulsive. It's linear. You know it's got spooky stuff in it as well as you know lots and lots of violence and and you know lots of lots you of can really powerful cover emotion. the stage in blood as uh, as was. Uh, happened with Jamie Lloyd's yeah, yeah. indeed but, I, but to be back. honest that I've, I've actually seen I've seen quite a lot of Macbeth mm. I feel like it's the Shakespeare play I've seen the most yeah but I've not very rarely seen one I liked. But it's interesting how how you know the 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 roles can uh, land very differently. Yeah. So the Ray Fiennes India Ravama version, which is is coming to London mm. later on, which I saw up in Liverpool, she comes across much more strongly, Lady Macbeth, in that in India Ravama's performance. And it was actually Fiennes's that I felt was sort of low key and lacking in mm. charisma or or you know sort of force in that. Similarly, um, Yael Farber's production at uh, the Almeida a few years back, which managed the only thing of making. Uh, Macbeth longer than <laughs> <laughs> it usually is. You know, usually plays are the shortest player and she managed well, to run it to about years, three years. A, a two-hour Lear and a yeah, three-and-a-half hour Macbeth. True, it's true, but, <laughs> uh, but that has Saoirse Ronan in it as, yeah. as, uh, as Lady Macbeth. Yeah. That, the whole production seemed to revolve around her. You know, she was this lone, slight, blonde figure and uh, with Irish-accented mm. figure amidst all these very powerful... Scottish men. Um, mm. I, I mean, I, I agree. I, I love Chris Jumbra as an actor, and uh, I, her performance didn't really land for me here either. No, it's true. And I think, just a quick word on the design, I think that dressing her in white is a bit of a bum note. It's quite mm. a weird thing to do in this context. Like, if you're going to dress someone in white, and the only person in white, yeah. like just one figure in the whole thing... And then have them commit a bloody crime. You can't keep the damn thing pristine all the way through. And they yeah. do. And it's really weird. And it just it put me in mind of that Kenneth Branagh Macbeth that was at the Manchester International Festival. I think it was in 2013. Um, and it was in it was in a deconsecrated church. And the aisle of the church, which is sort of where they went up and down, was lined or coated with, I think it was peat. Mm. Everything just got muddier and muddier and everyone just got dirtier and dirtier and dirtier. And it kind of reflected the sort of progressive defilement of the Macbeths and their minds and their morality. And it worked really, really well. But I noticed over the course of the play that she didn't get dirty in this bloody white dress or not bloody white dress. Mm -hmm. Um, And it really bothered me. I was like, I don't really understand what the point of that was. 
Yeah. I thought that was a really odd design choice because, you know, it's like the Chekhov's gun of design, yes. isn't it? It's like <laughs> if you're going to stick someone in a white dress, you've got to do something with it. Yeah. It's true. It's true. Just to return briefly to the whole sound design thing, we know, which was the, 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 the main sort of innovation in yeah, the production totally. and the main thing that it revolved around. I'm not opposed to this per se. I, you know, the, the the time I've seen this technology applied to its best was uh, the Complicity show at the Barbican. The Encounter, yeah, yeah, the yeah, encounter yeah, the which encounter, was yeah. Simon McBurney on his own, where you did feel he was confiding in you and you could feel his voice moving around, you know, yeah. from ear to ear and stuff. And there was another I just show, sorry to interrupt, yeah. there was another show, Anna, at the National Theatre, yeah. where they were behind a glass box and That's you right. listened through headphones. Yes, mm. yeah. I, I just didn't feel it sort of added anything to Shakespeare here. And I, I saw... A post by uh, Mark Ravenhill, the playwright on X this week, where mm. he said, I'm just reading it out now, part of the dynamic of a play is the voice in space, the difference of the voice in profile turned upstage, played out front. Miked plays flatten the dynamic and disempower the actor. I'm not interested in seeing any miked plays in 2024. True, but I engaged with him about this this yeah. morning, actually, oh, yeah. on Twitter. And I, and I said, what do you think? Because he was discussing it with Matthew um, Zia yeah. as well, the director, yeah. uh, who will be directing a show actually later this season at the Donmar. And I was asking them what they thought about, you know, when you do it, this sort of experimentation. And he was saying, actually, he's not really talking about that. He thinks this kind of experimentation is good, yeah. actually... He's talking about mic'd up straight plays, uh, so yes. people talking. And, and actually, I, we were saying I can't really remember one having seen one that is in a a normal space, like which hasn't been mic'd up for yeah. ages and ages and ages. Mm. I don't really I understand mean, why. I take his point, and I take the distinction between that, you know, mic'd yeah. up normal plays and experimentation. But you know, that was part of what was lost for me was the dynamic of the sure. voice in space yeah, yeah, yeah. and the and the sort of. The need to listen in when someone is whispering or, yeah. or, or confiding in you—the fact that you know—if they're—if they're basically shouting in your ear about their yeah, yeah, innermost thoughts—it it does. It did have a blunting <clears throat> effect for me. It's—it was still worth it for me to see David Tennant and yeah. Chris Jumbo on stage together, even though Lady Macbeth didn't land as as, as soundly as I'd have liked. I did believe in their relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. Know, and, and that isn't always the case with the Macbeths. So you know, it's one of the one of Mike Longhurst's last. Um, productions before he leaves as director of the Donmar and I think you have to call it a success you know yeah, commercial and artistic definitely and also I think you know so the, a mistake that so many people make with Macbeth and one of the reasons why I very rarely like it is that they think it's an epic and it's not yeah. it's a domestic scale yeah. psychological thriller yeah. and so having it like this I think it, it served that side of it really really well the only other Macbeth I've really absolutely adored was one I saw many many years ago at the pit at the Barbican which again was a tiny space and I just feel like you know just because there's a battle in it doesn't mean you have to do it on on the Olivier stage you know I just want to add a couple of things which is that I don't understand why they kept in the porter scene no at all I don't think it adds anything (laughs) and the updating with contemporary jokes was deeply unfunny absolutely well that's already been done last year wasn't it with um, Stuart Lee yes rewrote it it's just interminable you just have to sort of sit there and kind of put up with it while it's happening and then eventually it stops and I think it's weirdly panto style isn't it there's a lot of call and response stuff with the audience and a lot of you know sort of slightly insulting the audience doesn't work I mean just because it was done in December it doesn't mean you have to yeah exactly it doesn't mean you have to into a panto or the portrait into a panto the other thing is the witches Mm. I would say yeah. like the witches is an interesting one because you never see them you just have the you just have the sound you yeah. just have the voices um did I miss them I felt like I felt like the concept of them was not resolved by not seeing them. I felt like they just didn't know what to do with them. It's to introduce the idea that they may be in his head. 
aren't they? Surely. Sure, Although but it doesn't really well, it doesn't so. really work because later on you then yeah. have people kind of writhing around on the stage yes. and you're not sure whether they're the witches or not. Yeah, but early absolutely. on you know have them there and you just have the sound and I don't think it works because it doesn't hang together. Yeah. You know, it's better than trying too hard, yes. which is like, you know, let's make them children, let's make them Spanish, let's mm, make them, yeah. you know, whatever. Yeah. But when actually all you need to do is just make them kind of mean old women with nothing to lose. Yeah. But yeah, it again, I don't it never, nobody's ever got it quite right I don't think they're no. hard the no. witches the finest really one hard. is in, the finest Varma one is interesting in, in that it turns them into sort of displaced persons on okay. a battlefield right right so okay. they are sort of shell shocked uh, you know there's there's a suggestion that they may you know, they've been witchified by war I suppose uh, and it right. is a mu- that is a much more martial production than this one there's Fair much enough. more of a, a sense well, of, of a nation to, at war doing a kind of comparison in a freezing cold warehouse somewhere <laughs> yes absolutely can I just say one of the um, clearly great Lady Macbeths that we all I imagine missed the one that I'm gutted to miss was uh, Danny Minogue playing uh, Lady Macbeth at the Edinburgh Festival in 1999 what what the I, hell yep that was that is a real thing we should be so lucky. What? Oh. <laughs> Wrong Minogue. Oh. Wrong Minogue. <laughs> what, can you name a Danny Minogue hit? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we veered away from Rebecca, which suggests we've said all we've got to say about I it. Think, <laughs> yes. I think, yes. I think, yeah, I think that it's, well, I mean, of course it's worth seeing, but you can't get a ticket. So yeah, it's yeah, it's on until the 10th of February. I don't know if they're going to film it, whether it'll crop up on NT Live or, you know, I the think they'd services, be mad not to. I think they'd be mad not you to. You have your own yeah. headphones at home. Yes, exactly. absolutely, yes. <laughs> And that's the Standard Theatre Podcast. Please do hit follow, leave a comment, tell your friends, and feel free to drop us a line at theatrepod at standard.co.uk. And thanks to our guest this week, Tuppence Middleton. Don't forget to give our previous shows a listen. They include interviews with Hattie Morahan, Patrick Vale, Susan Wakoma, Sir Ian McKellen, and many, many more. Thanks to our producer, Rachel Abbott, and we'll see you back here next Sunday. 